Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to season two of Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. As we kick off the Olympic season, we're joined in this episode by an athlete who made a big mark on the biathlon world as a junior. It seems like just a few years ago that Sean Doherty was collecting medals at the Youth and Junior World Championships. Today, at 26, he's become a seasoned veteran on the World Cup Tour. Sean joins us from the team's preseason training camp at Soldier Hollow, the 2002 Olympic biathlon venue in Utah. He'll talk about his own origins in the sport and reflect back on his junior success. It is a fascinating interview with a very engaging athlete who is now a role model for the next generation of biathletes. Let's head to Soldier Hollow now for the kickoff episode of Heartbeat featuring Sean Doherty. Sean, thank you for joining us today on Heartbeat. Thank you, Tom. So I know you guys came out here for a, a nice fall color October camp, roller skiing, but who would have thought we'd get a little bit of snow mixed in there, huh? Yeah, it's, it's nice though. I mean, it's up on the high, high on the mountains and uh, it's quite the scenic combination with the snow and the fall colors. I enjoy it. First snow of the year is always exciting. Yeah, it really is. You know, we love it out here this time of year. It may be a little bit unpredictable, but uh, the, the camp, and we're going to dive more into the details of your career and things, but just curious about the camp. Uh, great opportunity to get together. You and your teammates are all there uh, implementing still a COVID protocol, but what's the importance of coming together at this time of year for the team and having a camp at uh, the Olympic venue at Soldier Hollow? Um, one of the big things is just it's great preseason with uh, the altitude here coming out for three weeks uh, really gives us a nice physiological benefit uh, as we plan on also the games being at uh, a similar elevation. And then it's also, it's just important to you know change the scenery, helps keep the focus fresh. And it's like this camp kind of marks the final push of the dry land training season. So it's a nice kind of capstone event, so to say, of come out to Utah, better weather typically than the Northeast. We finish off this training season, get to see some new places and it's a, uh, just a great venue to train at. You mentioned the elevation and also just segueing a little bit to the venue in Beijing, the mystery Olympics, no one really knows uh, what it's going to look like, but are you similar elevations at Soldier Hollow as to what you'll see in Beijing this February? From what I understand, yes, we'll be plus or minus few meters, but would be very similar. I understand that some of your technicians are actually going to go and see the course. Uh, do you, you really don't have any knowledge right now on what that course is like, do you? No, the most I've seen of this course is some video that uh, was taken from last spring there by uh, like person related to the timing setup for the for the courses or something like that i'm not sure uh so yeah it'll be interesting it'll be the first time for us seeing it but even for the like the wax techs and technical staff it's been very limited their access to potentially test see anything involved with this course so 
it'll be new, which is actually, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know, it's a level playing field for everybody, isn't it? I mean, every team has the same situation. None of you have seen the course. Exactly. I think that's kind of fun. You know, it's not a home course for anybody except the, uh, except the Chinese team. They've been training there a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing we'll have to overcome. Let's talk about you, Sean, and uh, how you came into biathlon. And I love talking to biathletes about this because there are so many different pathways into the sport. How did Sean Doherty get into biathlon? I started out uh, getting more involved in cross-country skiing, and then a family friend of ours introduced me, kind of, kind of planted the bug in my ear, so to say, about like, hey, you know, you could do this, help set me up for the first rifle, kind of just like a little nudge in the right direction, basically. And uh, he, he connected me with, you know, we can help me get to some events or, you know, races. And then through that, I was did some clinics and some other events. And then I met Art Stegan on the, a member of the board. And then he introduced me to Algus Shalma in Jericho. And from there I started really pursuing it, really training, you know, I was still in high school, but training pretty seriously for it and kind of making it goal. And then was able to qualify for the junior world championships team. And then once I saw competition in Europe, I was, I was all in. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is great stuff. So that's the, the short version, the road all the way in. Biathlon really is a family sport and you got hooked in early with some of the real key people in that biathlon family in New England. It, it still is like that, isn't it? It's just a, a family helping to guide people, young athletes like yourself through the sport. Exactly. I mean, it's a small, a small community and yeah, I was fortunate to meet the right people at the right time. And then that set my career on a, on a great trajectory, which is, I'm very thankful for it. Did you, when you were in high school, did you have interscholastic uh, cross country skiing at that time? Were you on the high school team? I was a member of the high school team, um, at the beginning of my, or my freshman and in my sophomore year of high school, I was competing abroad so much that I wasn't really a part of the high school ski racing scene anymore. So eventually it just kind of was like, well, I'm not going to like do this halfway. So I actually ended up, I would practice with those guys sometimes and, and like I'm good friends with the, with the coach still to this day, but I, uh, I was not a member of the high school team as biathlon got more serious and time consuming. Let's talk about, uh, your, period as a junior in the sport you had an outstanding career and one of the early events that really helped to put you in the right direction was the youth olympic games and this was an event that had come along you were the right age to slot into that and in 2012 you took part in the very first youth olympic games and you guys had some good success there yeah that was uh that was a great experience those youth olympic games and yeah we were really it was very fortunate that things came together in that uh final relay event which almost didn't happen we uh we had a really big snowstorm that night into the competition day and like they were putting the chains on the buses to get up to the venue we were it was kind of a kind of crazy they were grooming the course like throughout zeroing and warm up, but they, they were able to pull it off. And, uh, I had a really great leg and it all came together and 
we were able to secure a medal, which was really, that was quite special for a, for a young Sean. Who, who was on that team with you that year? So it was a mixed relay format between, with two cross-country skiers and two biathletes. So I was on team with Anna Kubek as the other biathlete, and then it was Patrick Caldwell and Heather Mooney. No, or Brooke. Brookman. The, uh, uh, one of the things that I like about the Youth Olympic Games is that it has a history of experimenting with different formats. I mean, what you just laid out, mixing cross-country skiers and biathletes together, it's pretty innovative, especially for that age. Yeah, it was cool. I was psyched to have more events. It was great. So from, from that event in Innsbruck, the 2012 Youth Olympic Games, uh, you went on to the Youth and Junior Biathlon World Championships over the next few years. I think if my statistics are right, over a three or four year period, you earned 10 medals, uh, a record at the time. As you started to pick up those medals and have success, what was going through your mind? I mean, was this really fortifying your decision to take on biathlon as a career? Absolutely. I mean, those, that success young was really pivotal in you know, allowing myself to have confidence and also to like really commit fully to, to train and to pursue that high level ambition of racing. So those were, I mean, those were big. They allowed me to get into other camps and start to train with the national team here and there as a young, young up and coming guy and to interact with national team coaches and gain more experience. And it, it was, there was a big uh, kind of snowballing effect from those things. What were some of the lessons that you took away from that period? And, and you had success early on. You were winning, winning medals at the early years of your competition period at the youth, World Youth Championships. What were some of the big lessons you learned during that period? Oh, man, that, was a, that was, feels like a long time ago now. Some of those things. I think I just, it was one of those things that came back later. But a big lesson, a major takeaway was being comfortable or being at least accepting of those those high pressure situations of that high expectation you know because once you do it once everybody expects you to do it again every time and that's very hard in biathlon so to be comfortable in those high pressure situations and have confidence in myself that I was prepared based on past experience based on training and to to have that that trust in those crunch moments those final standings that I knew I was capable of doing it because I had done it before and I think that translated into my transition onto the world cup as well that like i was able to i mean at first it was intimidating but then relatively quickly i found that sense of like no i belong here like i belong competing with these guys at this level at these events and and i think that that success and that those experiences of really high high pressure and racing were able to help me develop those traits that pressure that you talked about, I think that's something all athletes feel when you have that early level of success. There is that expectation. Let's just explore that a little bit more if we can. Did, did, is that something that you had to learn and had to adjust to with your mental approach to the sport? When you're in the sport, it's easy. It's the stuff outside that's harder to handle. I mean, you're 18 years old and everybody expects you to be some sort of phenomenon or some sort of you know thing and it's it's tough you know they're that just like we said it's a small community you know i had some good friends and some good role models and stuff uh at the time in the sport but that's a 
I don't know, to combine all that with being a teenager. That's a lot to, a lot to handle. And, you know, sometimes I look back and I'm like, yeah, I did okay. And sometimes I was like, man, I was unbearable, but mostly, mostly I think that the stuff in the sport was, was easier for me. It was the stuff outside that was like, that was more difficult to kind of manage altogether. Sean, let's fast forward a few years. You are now a role model to athletes who were in your position just a few years ago. We have the World Youth and Junior World Championships coming to Soldier Hollow this February and March, where the entire world is coming here to Utah. What advice and counsel would you have to the young skiers who are just like you were a few years ago and going to that big world event? Well, I would definitely say... uh listen to your coaches because they have Tim there and they have some others who are very, very great sources of knowledge for, for handling all the racing. And my, what I found I raced my best in those, you know, because I also had the kind of home world junior worlds when it was in Presque Isle was like, just get on that starting line and race. Like you have nothing to lose, not to say recklessly, but if you hesitate, if you hold back, if you are so concerned about the pressure, oh, my mom's here, my dad's here, my whole family showed up to watch me race, that stuff gets in the way, you know? And if you just like exhale at that starting line and you go, I'm going to charge today, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try my hardest to execute a great, aggressive race. And then, you know, the chips will fall as they may. You got to live with that. But at least you didn't get caught up in the other things that aren't the race. That's hard to do, but I think if you can embrace that mindset, really go for it, then you give yourself a chance, at least a good chance, to a good fighting chance to have a result You know, that's the best you're capable of. Yeah, I love your philosophy on that. And this is something that people think, oh, this event is at home and we have this home snow advantage, but you really bring in a lot of other distractions when that happens. But your counsel to just go for it, I mean, that's... That's what you have to do as an athlete, right? You've got to put it on the line, make it happen, right? Exactly. And you got to, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but you got to be at least happy at the end of the day that you did that part right. Yeah. The, let's, let's explore a little bit something you touched on a few minutes ago, and that is your transition to the next level. So you're a highly successful uh, junior world championship athlete, and now you're transitioning up to the big leagues, to the World Cup, to the World Championships. That's a tough transition, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild to like go from watching them on TV to being on the start line with those guys, and it's 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 cool, but it takes a takes a few events before you kind of get over the the star factor of some of this stuff. Oh man, I've watched these guys my whole, my whole life. I've studied their shooting. I've studied their technique. And like, turns out they put their skis on one at a time, just like anybody else, you know, but it takes a while for that to kind of get your seed legs under you. You know, these big events, big crowds, big atmosphere, it, it all feels hectic and your eyes are kind of big. But then once you can settle in, then you can start to give yourself a chance to actually race and see if you can mix it up with these, these experienced athletes. When, because you had this good track record from junior worlds, did some of the stars know who you were when you started out on the world cup? I mean, a tiny bit. They'd seen a thing or two here or there, but you know, it's when you're on the world cup, you're pretty focused on just that one thing. You're, I mean, 
And it wasn't like they were like, hey, Sean Doherty, I'm your biggest fan. You know, yeah. we're all pros and we're just racing. <laughs> Did you, one of the things that has impressed me is just the quality of the field. I mean, then the depth of the field that you have internationally. Can you talk a little bit about that and give the listeners a sense of just how rich and deep the talent is internationally in biathlon? It's something that's really come more more and more apparent the last few seasons. Uh, it's like the midfield. You know, we see a lot of the uh, the superstars, the best guys, the fastest guys on TV, but the the level of competition from place fifteen to fifty is just incredibly tight. You know, you'll you you will have you know when we had a sprint race this March in. Nova Mesto, where it was, I believe, less than a minute and 50 seconds separating the top 50, the top 60 competitors, which is just like, that is, you know, there is no room for error. You sneeze once on a downhill and, you know, you might lose a tenth of a second and then that's three places. It, you know, it feels, it, it feels so crazy when you're looking at the results page and you're like, wow, like that, you know, you're trying to break through the data or you're trying to pick apart your race versus somebody else's. And, you know, we're looking at tens of seconds over a 24 minute race, which just seems, seems pretty wild. And that's, I mean, that's fun and it's exciting though, because you're always, always battling with somebody, you know, you can always, if you execute a good minor section of the course, you can still, you can catch or pass or gain on someone because it's so compact and it's so competitive, which is for me, very exciting and motivating and fun when you can try to look for those little tiny margins and see if you can come out on top. As biathlon fans here in America, we hear these stories of these huge crowds and the popularity of the sport. Can you quantify that a little bit as an athlete and competing over there and give folks a sense of how big this sport really is in some of these great venues in Europe? Yeah. And it's, it's kind of hard to put it in perspective, but I think, but like we haven't had spectators in a while, unfortunately, but like the last time we had a regular, not world chance, but a world cup in Antolz, we had a you know, hundred thousand spectators over the course of three days. It's, these are huge shows <laughs> and that, that energy from the crowd and that, that the whole, the whole buzz of it all is, is really great, especially when you're on course, you know, and you're, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a you know huge name when I'm racing, but I still have guys that you know go Sean, Ale Ale, and throwing stuff like that, and it's really it's fun, you know. It helps, and it's it's cool to to be out there and having all these people just uh, really, yeah, they they enjoy the show, you know, and it's fun. It's exhilarating. I mean, I, I've yeah, I've watched it on television, and it just is amazing to me to see the intensity of the crowds. Now, as you said, we haven't had those for a while. Hopefully, we'll get back to that. But uh, it's it's kind of a bit of the legacy of the sport. Yeah, especially especially that uh, as the crowds cheer in in time with the shooting. That's the that's the best. One of the programs you've been involved with that's fascinating to me is that you joined the National Guard a few years ago to get some benefits and training and also some financial support. Let us, how does that program work and how has it benefited you and some of your teammates over the last few years? Yes, right. Joined the Army and became a member of the, the National Guard biathlon team, which is a, a really cool program, really unique program that allows us to be 
supported through this this military biathlon team, which is actually a pretty common thing in biathlon. Most nations uh, have an army or police biathlon team. That's actually pretty cool. We'll, we have a, a, a World Military Championships this end of March, right after the World Cup in Oslo. We'll go back to Rupolding and we'll all race. It's like a like a mini World Cup. And um, yeah, we just, there's a lot of career benefits um, after biathlon to, to joining the Army and also the ability to, to receive, you know, a, a great level of support independent of the national team that if you were to have a year that was off and you weren't eligible for a ton of funding or you had, you know, I don't know, just it's, it's a, it's a gives you a much stronger sense of job security that uh, is often hard to find as a, as a high level skier. So those were a lot of the factors to go into it. And I mean, it's been, it's been great. I really enjoy uh, when I drill with my unit and do, do that side of things as well as when I just train in Jericho with the, with the guard team, cause it's a great group and it's uh, really been, I've been fortunate to be able to, to work with them. It's, it's a, it's been a, a nice team to be a part of. As a soldier, you've gone through basic training, you do regular drills and you have certain obligations within the national guard. What are some of the takeaways that you've uh, gained in, in that? I think particularly going back to basic training, are there some good life skills and lessons that you learned out of that? Definitely. I mean, I, basic is a basic is an experience and I, I learned I don't know, more people skills. A lot of, you know, you're, you're working with people you don't know under great duress and little sleep for a long time. So, you, you know, that is one thing you become aware of, like how, how to work with people that you actually pretty much have nothing in common with, except that you're been set this task. And also the, I had some, I had some couple of drill sergeants and training officers that were, they, uh, I don't know. They left it. They left a lasting message with me, and definitely become more aware of like the qualities of leadership and some of those things in in relation to uh, through the experience of basic training. It's been interesting to watch this program and you and your teammates. Actually, I should ask who who else on the team is involved with this program right now. On the national team, we have uh, myself. There's Leif Nordgren. There's DJ Irwin and uh, the younger member, Vashek Cervenka. We're all members of the National Guard biathlon team. But one of the things that struck me is that for years and years, the foreign teams have been doing this, and it may be invisible to a lot of the fans, but uh, this really has been our opportunity to maybe level that playing field a little bit, hasn't it? I, I mean, the military is not for everyone, but it is... Uh, you know, a great opportunity to make biathlon into a career. So I want to segue to Beijing now. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but this is an Olympic season. We're coming out of a very intense COVID year and still following COVID protocols. In fact, as you get to the World Cup this year, are you anticipating similar COVID protocols that you have had last year, or will things open up a little bit? I doubt things will open up. It worked well last year. There's too much on the line and nobody wants to get sick. It's, it's, you know, that we may all compete against each other, but we definitely have that in common. You know, the COVID stuff, 
it's it's a bit of a nuisance. But in all honesty, we were we were able to race an entire season last winter, and that is the most important thing. So I imagine we're going to follow a very similar blueprint to this previous season. Well, it makes a lot of sense. The IBU did a great job in modifying the World Cup calendar last year, trying to do more events together and not have so much travel. So I'm, I'm sure we will see more of that this year. In that this is an Olympic year, do you approach this any differently in your preparation? Are you doing different things or do you treat it as this is another season and it happens to be the Olympic year? It's a bit of an in-between. We're always trying to evolve and learn from the previous year's training, always chasing that better result. But at the same time, we're not throwing the playbook out the window and freestyling it either. It's, you know, we've we've made adaptations, but we, we have a core we're basing it all on. It's, it's, you can't pull things out of a hat and hope for the best. You know, we're trying to make the best decisions we can with as much data and past knowledge that we can apply. So it's kind of in between. How do you work on peaking during the season? I mean, you will compete in a World Cup schedule uh, in December and January, and then you'll go to the Olympics. How do you change your uh, training and preparation during the season to be able to peak at the proper times for the right events? It's very difficult, and different people need different uh, stimulus in order to get that peak. And there's also kind of, especially in biathlon, there's kind of two peaks. I mean, sometimes you don't necessarily hit the physical, but if you can reach a mental peak where you're incredibly sharp on the shooting range, I mean, that is almost more valuable. And it's hard to know exactly what you, you know, you can look at what's worked in the past, you know, but mostly I just rely on, you know, we sit down with the coach, I'll sit down with Matt Emmons, we'll come up with, you know, we'll kind of create an environment that through a bunch of different factors, will hopefully you'll come out the other side, you'll be fresh, be focused, and you'll be ready to give it your all. Sean, your girlfriend, uh, Tara Garrity Motes, is a world-class athlete. She's been the number one ranked Nordic combined skier in the world tremendous ski jumper, uh, a former biathlete who is now going back to biathlon. But with the two of you being world-class athletes, do you share thoughts on uh, approach to sport or anything else uh, to develop synergies in your own respective athletic worlds? Yeah, we talk, we talk racing all the time. That's one of the, one of the great things we have in common. We both love to compete. We both love to race and we both love to, I don't know, to, to study the game. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between competition in many different events and it's fun. You know, uh, now that she's coming back to biathlon, we talk a lot of shooting and uh, I really enjoy it because we have a great dialogue and it's, it's just fun to sit around sometimes and discuss the fine details of the struggle of biathlon. Being that you are both world-class athletes and you're traveling the globe, do you cross paths much during the winter? That is difficult. Uh, usually the competition schedules don't leave much room for that. The last couple of winters, we've been fortunate to be able to overlap a bit over the Christmas holidays. But yeah, it's, it's, we usually just watch, seems like we talk on the phone and watch each other on TV, but we don't get to spend that much time together during the, during the race season. 
I know when Tara made the decision to go back to biathlon last spring, she did it with a great deal of enthusiasm. It's been fun to follow her progress on Instagram over the course of the summer. Uh, is she feeling she's making some good progress and excited about the season ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's excited to to make this change as well. It's been it's been fun for her to be in a new environment, a new sport, and new team, and. Yeah, I mean, it's been a great summer and she's had a great training environment thanks to the, uh, the Craftsbury Outdoor Center and their the Green Racing Project. And it's been it's been fun to watch. I mean, she's made some great progress and we got some races at the end of this camp where we can uh, we can see it's a great test for all of us. Yeah. And she's out at that camp right now at the Soldier Hollow. Yes. Good. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Pass along uh, our best uh, from all the listeners here at Heartbeat. We'll be following her this winter for sure. Uh, I, I want to take one other serious topic, and then we'll have a little bit of fun to close out the podcast here. But let's just talk about biathlon. You've been in the sport now for over a decade. You've had great success. Uh, you are you know, one of the top prospects on the U.S. biathlon team. When you look into the sport deeply and what it means to you, what are some of those things that, that really make biathlon resonate for you in your heart? I was thinking about this. You sent me the, this kind of question ahead of time. And I think for me, the best quality of biathlon is its, it's uncompromising challenge. If the targets are always the same, but, and you get better at shooting for sure over your career, but at the same time, the targets still don't care. They don't owe you anything, you know, and that opportunity that, that, that throws in, you know, you could ski 30th course time and have a phenomenal result because, you know, if somebody slipped ahead of you. And I think that's really what keeps me coming back. And that, that elusive perfection, when you do, you know, hit 10 out of 10 in a sprint and it does click, you know, and then once in a while, when you, if you can, you know, hold up and, and do 20 out of 20, that, that to chase that and to, have those yeah those moments are really what i find keeps me keeps me engaged keeps me involved keeps me interested i love that approach to it the uncompromising challenge with the target it's something so when you shoot clean you leave the track with a pretty good feeling on those days don't you yeah it almost makes up for all the other days you didn't well I, I hope, Sean, that you have a lot of days with a good relationship with the targets this year. Sean Doherty, thank you so much for talking biathlon with us. We're going we're gonna to wrap it up with a few fun questions, what I call on target. Just going to ask you about some of your favorite things. And the perennial question I ask everyone, and I'm still looking for a different answer than what everybody else gives, but your favorite biathlon venue. Oh, my favorite venue? I don't know. It's hard to pick one. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Antolz is not my favorite venue. Love so, it. Okay. We got some diversity now. <laughs> I would go, I really have raced well and I enjoy racing in Hawkfieldson. And where are some of my other favorites? That's a good one. We have a couple of new events, new locations in Switzerland and Estonia that I've never been to on the calendar this winter. Looking forward to those. There were some once we did race in Russia. It was a night race. That was, that was pretty phenomenal as well. But I have to say Hawkfieldson is one, like if I had to pick my place to have a good event, I would, I would like, I like that course. I like that range. I've done well there in the past. It's a good one for me. Cool. Everybody who skis loves to be in the outdoors. And when you're looking for that break from biathlon, what do you do outdoors? That's really feels good to you. 
yeah, my therapy time, I love to fly fish. That's kind of very relaxing for me. Uh, it's something I've done uh, with my brother and my mom and grandparents since I was pretty young. And that's if I can find some time to get out and on the water, that's, that's always a treat. Do you travel with your fly gear? Um, I have my fishing stuff at this camp. Uh, in the winter time, I travel with fly tying stuff. I like to tie, like to tie during the off season. It's a, uh, it's a fun thing to do when you're in the hotel and keeps you, keeps you busy. Good excuse to be off the internet and, but no fishing stuff in the winter. Opportunities are limited. So given that you are right now, literally a mile or two from one of the truly great trout waters in the Provo river, have you wandered over there at all this fall? Uh, not yet, but we have some off days, uh, later in the camp. I'll get out. Certainly see if I can catch a few. I know Sean, that you're a craftsman as well. And why don't you tell folks about, uh, what you like to do in crafting things? Oh yeah. I, um, I really enjoy wood turning on a lathe. That's, uh, something that I got into also as a young, a younger guy. And, uh, just really enjoy it. It's another thing that's very, I find myself being very immersed in that and very relaxing in the sense of focusing on something totally different. I like to make bowls mostly, um, I made other stuff occasionally just out of curiosity <laughs> and, uh, yeah, turning odd bits of wood and seeing what I can find. I, when I was, when I lived in like plastic Olympic training center, I had a small day that I would bring with me there. And that's, it's not an easy one to travel with uh, to all the camps, but I do, I do really enjoy wood turning and just, yeah, it's a fun project. When you're back home, do you go out and search for your own wood? I do. Yeah, I have, I have quite the collection. Last uh, last winter, my father gave me a big burl for Christmas. That was a great present. So, you know, you, it's fun to go out and see, or when you're, whenever if you're working firewood or a friend of yours is like, Hey, I had this tree come down. Is there anything you know of interest to you or something like that? It's always fun to see what drifts your way. What's your favorite chainsaw? My favorite chainsaw. I recently have a, a, a steel 362. That thing is an absolute machine. Yeah. Nothing runs like a steel, right? No, not in my experience. <laughs> Last question, Sean Doherty. In one word, what does biathlon mean to you? We touched on the challenge, but oh man, one word. One word. What does biathlon mean to you? Well, uh, man, I know it's a tough question, isn't it? It's, it's one word for such a so much, such a big chapter of my life and everything. That's hard. I would say, I don't. I would say it's my passion. That's that. That's what I would say. That's two words, but or maybe three, that's okay. But that's passion that's, is that's, good. That's that's my my shortest summary. If I was going to give you a tip and hold up a card, I was going to say that word you used earlier, uncompromising. That's that that's another good true. word. Sean Doherty, thank you for joining us here on Heartbeat. Thank you, Tom. Sean Doherty, heading into the Olympic season, coming to us today from the. U.S. Biathlon Camp at Soldier Hollow. We appreciate Sean joining us for the debut edition of Heartbeat for Season 2 here going into the Beijing year. 
If you enjoy Heartbeat, we appreciate you subscribing so you get every episode delivered right to you. We'll be back with more episodes this season. I'm Tom Kelly, your host with Sean Doherty. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast.